Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number three, the book of Acts, chapter one, continued. Well, since we are early in our study of the book of Acts from a Hebrew Roots perspective, I'd like to take just a few minutes to recap what we covered last time. Now we're going to be going quite deep into Acts. It's going to take time and it will help if each week we we, uh, sort of rehash a few things from the previous lesson. Now you're going to find that as we move along through Acts, we're going to run across a number of, of seemingly common and innocent sounding phrases and statements, but which are actually important. And they carry more weight than meets the eye. Now some of this is because these statements often represent principles and concepts that are uniquely Hebrew, but have been somewhat masked by being communicated in Greek and then translated into English, often with a Latin translation in between the two. This is not a conspiracy. It's simply the difficulty of transliterating languages, especially without the benefit of understanding the culture of the original authors and the context of the times in which they lived. Thus, part of the reason for the lengthy time we'll spend in Acts, probably around a year, is to regularly pause to insert some tidbits about the New Testament era in the Holy Land and to remind us of Torah principles that are being played out in the era following Christ's birth. Now first and most importantly, the author of the book of Acts was Luke. This is the same Luke who penned the Gospel of Luke. In fact, those two books of the Bible that we today read and treat entirely separately were originally a single unified work called History of Christian Origins that did consist of two volumes. At first Luke's work was circulated among privileged Christians in its unified form, but at some undetermined point between about 70 AD and perhaps 140 AD, these two volumes were separated and they started circulating individually. Most likely this was just an issue of practicality. And they started circulating that way because the two of them together formed a large work. Thus the Gospel of Luke took on a life all its own, as did the book of Acts. Each was read and circulated for its value to Christianity, but on its own accord. And as it happened, in some sectors of the of the church, the Gospel of Luke became well accepted, but the book of Acts not so much. In fact, some church authorities out and out rejected the book of Acts as too Jewish to be of any use to this new Gentiles-oriented religion called Christianity. Now, it needs to be made clear that by the mid 2nd century AD, Paul's and Peter's and John's letters, as well as many Gospels, and by the way, several more than only the four that appear in today's authorized Bible, were being used and they were accepted 
by the church and it's already many branches but only as instructional and in some cases authoritative. However, these various documents were not seen as Holy Scripture at that time. Well more than a century after Christ's death and resurrection there was still no such thing as a New Testament. Nor were there were, were any of the documents that we now call New Testament books ordained as God-inspired, or at least not on the level of inspiration as to be considered on par with the Hebrew Bible. So the only Bible in existence at the time for both Christians and Jews, Messianic or Orthodox, was what we today call the Old Testament. However... About 144 A.D., a wealthy and powerful Christian named Marcion tried to change all of that. He insisted it was time to set aside the Hebrew Bible and to create a Bible that consisted only of fairly recent documents written exclusively by believers in Christ. He accepted only two writers as legitimate, Luke and Paul. However, he also accepted only part of Luke's writings, specifically Luke's Gospel. And he accepted only nine of Paul's letters. He was roundly criticized by the church bishops as a heretic for his stance. Yet his insistence on raising the level of authority for a number of well-known documents already in use by the church from informative up to God-inspired and thus hoping to create a new and separate Christian Bible was an idea that just wouldn't die. So by about 200 AD, church councils were meeting to decide whether they ought to create a Christian Bible and if they did, then which documents, which letters should it include? The rest, as they say, is history. And so not later than around 220 A.D., a New Testament was added to the Old Testament and presto, the Christian Bible as we know it was born. Now, it didn't necessarily contain all the same books or have them in the same order that our modern Bibles use, but it was pretty close. Well, last time we discussed that it seems that the book of Acts fell out of favor and became largely unknown to the church uh, by the start of the 5th century A.D. I read you a quote by the early church father John Chrysostom who wrote his commentary on the book of Acts around 400 A.D. and he attested that the book of Acts was not familiar to most Christian leaders. Some of the facts about what Jesus did after his resurrection are contained only in the book of Acts, such as his remaining on earth teaching his disciples for 40 days before he ascended up to heaven. But even more impactful to modern Christianity is that it's the book of Acts where we first meet Paul and we find out who he is, where he came from. We learn of his conversion from being a militant religious persecutor of Jewish believers to a devoted uh, devoted follower of uh, Yeshua. And we learn about his Jewish heritage. We learn about his continuing dedication as a Jew 
to the Torah, the law of Moses, well after his conversion. We were introduced to the concept of being baptized in the Holy Spirit, which is different than what John the Baptist offered in water baptism. And that before ascending, Jesus told his disciples to remain in Jerusalem to wait for what the Father promised. We learn that what the Father promised was spoken of in the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 31, 30-32, we read this. Here, the days are coming, says Adonai, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day I took them by their hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt because they, for their part, violated my covenant even though I, for my part, was a husband to them, says Adonai. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says Adonai. I'll put my Torah within them. I'll write it on their hearts. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. But what would be the mechanism by which God's Torah would be put within His people, written on their hearts, our hearts, Jeremiah doesn't explain that. But the prophet Ezekiel does. In Ezekiel 36, 26-28, we read this. I will give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit inside of you. I will take that stony heart out of your flesh and give you uh, uh, out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit inside of you. This will cause you to live by my laws, respect my rulings, and to obey them. So you will live in the land I gave to your ancestors, and you will be my people, and I will be your God. So what the Father promised centuries earlier was, according to Yeshua, about to happen. And the disciples needed to be in Jerusalem in order to receive it. Did they understand what it was exactly that they were going to receive? Without doubt, no. They didn't know. Then Acts 1 verse 6. The disciples ask Yeshua a question that indicates that they still do not grasp the purpose of His advent, death, and resurrection. They want to know if He's now going to restore Israel to self-rule. In other words, is Christ going to lead the Jews in a rebellion against the Romans? Yeshua responds to that question in verse 7. And his answer, not now, but later. He says that the time of Israel's emancipation and glory is not for them to know. In fact, That's information that the Father has not shared and He doesn't intend to. And, you know, we really shouldn't be harsh on these disciples for thinking in these terms. All of Judaism was awaiting for a warrior Messiah to restore Israel to their independence. In fact, restoring Israel to self-rule was thought to be the purpose for a Messiah. So it's no wonder that when Christ was arrested and then crucified, that the vast majority of Jews who perhaps hoped it was this man from Nazareth who was that Messiah, they fell away. 
And they were convinced he couldn't have been. I mean, after all, how does a dead man lead a military rebellion against the Romans? But in those same words that no doubt caused the disciples to be dismayed, that is that Yeshua would not lead a rebellion right now, Messiah also indicated that they should take their eyes off the unknowable future and concentrate on the now. They were soon going to get power. Power to become His witnesses not only to Jews in the Holy Land, but to all people on earth. However, to these 11 Galilean men who heard Christ's words, this had to be referring to them being a witness to the Jews of the vast diaspora, not to their Gentile enemies. Why would they think that way? Because Yeshua had earlier set up a prohibition. He specifically told them they could not take the good news of the Gospel to Samaria or to Gentiles. Matthew 10, verses 5 and 6. These twelve Yeshua sent out with the following instruction. Do not go into the territory of the Goyim, the Gentiles. Do not enter any town in Samaria, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This meant that essentially up to this point in their ministry, they had been restricted to Judea and the Galilee. But now, moments before Messiah ascends to heaven, He releases the disciples to go everywhere to proclaim the good news with no restrictions. Now this command was more momentous than the eleven had any idea of at the moment it was uttered. But the commission to do so was predicated on their first receiving what the Father promised that would fill them with power. And this was going to happen shortly in Jerusalem. Let's continue now with uh, verse 9 of the first chapter of Acts. And we're going to reread parts of this chapter as we go along. So have your Bibles open and handy. We're just going to read a couple of verses at a time. <clears throat> if you have a, Jewish, a complete Jewish Bible, we're going to start on page 1360. And we're going to read verses 9 through 11. <clears throat> After saying this, he was taken up before their eyes. A cloud hid him from their sight. And as they were staring into the sky after him, suddenly they saw two men dressed in white standing next to them. And the men said, You Galileans! Why are you standing, staring off into space? This Yeshua who had been taken away from you into heaven will come back to you in just the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This first verse that I read you alone could be a subject of an entire sermon. But let's put this all in context to begin. The 11 remaining in original disciples, Judas was now dead, personally witnessed Yeshua ascend. How did he ascend? Up and into the clouds. 
The passage states that they were all staring up into the sky. No doubtedly, I mean, undoubtedly they were slack-jawed. When suddenly two men are standing there with them. Now I think if I had been there, I too would have been so astonished and fixated on what was happening before my eyes. Watching Yeshua visibly and tangibly just float (laughs) up into the clouds that a hundred people could have showed up to watch and I wouldn't have been any more aware of their presence. So the sudden appearance out of nowhere of these two men, angels actually, wouldn't have been noticed until those men spoke and they said, Hey, you Galileans! Man, I'll bet they jumped a little bit. So let's dissect this passage. First is the issue of going up into the clouds, which is actually two issues. First of all, did Yeshua go up bodily? Or was it only his spirit? Or if neither, then in what form did he ascend? That's the first question. Second, why up into the clouds? Or was this just a colloquial way of saying he went up into the sky? Or is there a spiritual or prophetic meaning behind using the word cloud in this? Well, the first issue of how did he go up? Of course, is nothing we're ever going to prove. However, I believe the evidence says it was bodily. I do not think the disciples saw an apparition, nor was it Jesus in spirit. I believe that Yeshua was in the body. The same body that hung on that cross. What's my evidence for this? It is from the same author as the writer of the book of Acts. In Luke's first volume, and I want you to turn with me, the Gospel of Luke is the proof of my contention. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. And we are going to read verses 33 through 44. And I'd like you to follow along. This is 1328 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. 1328. They got up at once and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven gathered together with their friends, saying, It's true! The Lord has risen! Shimon saw him! Then the two told what had happened on the road and how he had become known to them in the breaking of the matzah. They were still talking about it when there he was, standing among them. Startled, terrified, they thought they were seeing a ghost. But he said to them, Why are you so upset? Why are these doubts welling up inside of you? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. It's I, myself. Touch me. See, a ghost doesn't have flesh and bones as you see I do. And as he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still unable to believe it for joy, and they stood there dumbfounded, he said to them, Have you something to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, which he took and ate in their presence. And Yeshua said to them, This is what I meant when I was still with you and told you that everything written about me in the Torah of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms had to be fulfilled. 
Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the Tanakh, the Old Testament, telling them, here is what it says. The Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day. And in his name, repentance leading to forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed to people from all nations, starting with Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Now I am sending forth upon you what my Father promised. So stay here in the city until you have been equipped with power from above. Okay. Yeshua goes to great lengths to prove that it is He in the flesh that stands before His disciples. He says He's not a ghost. In fact, while some say He was now in a glorified body, well, then if so, that glorified body still bore the scars of his horrible trial on the cross. For he gladly showed the disciples his disfigured hands and feet torn apart by the spikes that had been driven through them by the Roman soldiers. But Jesus also ate with them. As proof, he wasn't a spirit or an apparition. He was still human and he desired food for his body. Now the early church father Augustine, from around 400 AD, he lived at about the same time as John Chrysostom lived, expressed his viewpoint on this subject in a commentary he wrote on the Gospel of John. And before I read it to you, it's interesting to note that Augustine's home, where where he wrote, where he officiated as as the local church bishop, was a place called Hippo. Hippo is the modern name for Anaba, Algiers, Algeria, in northern Africa. He was a theologian. He was a philosopher first. He was a native of Algiers who came to believe in Christ in his mid-thirties. And he says this, How did they see him go? In the flesh they touched, which they felt, the scars of which they even probed by touching. In that body in which he went in and went out with them for forty days, manifesting himself to them in truth, not in any falsity, not as an apparition, not as a shadow, not as a spirit, but as he himself said, not deceiving, handle and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see me to have, See, this is the true definition of bodily resurrection. And since Yeshua is said to be the first fruits of the resurrection, and in time we shall follow in like kind, then this seems to indicate that we should expect to be resurrected in a like manner. Not necessarily still still harboring the scars of life or the conditions of, of old age or disease, but certainly as real fleshly bodies and not as disembodied spirits. The next issue concerns is ascending into the clouds. <clears throat> Without doubt, the most important 
biblical association that connects Christ with clouds comes in Daniel chapter 7. And Yeshua in Matthew 24 connected himself with coming back with clouds. If you want to follow along, turn to Matthew chapter 24. I'll read, just read it to you. We're going to look at verses 25 through 30. Matthew chapter 24. Starting at verse 25. There, I have told you in advance. So if people say to you, listen, he's out in the desert, don't go. Look, he's hidden away in a secret room. Don't believe it. For when the Son of Man does come, it'll be like lightning that flashes out of the east, fills the sky to the western horizon. Wherever there's a dead body, that's where you'll find the vultures. But immediately following the trouble of those times, the sun will grow dark, the moon will stop shining, the stars will fall from the sky, the powers in heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. All the tribes of the land will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with tremendous power and glory. So while Matthew, we just read, deals with his return to earth in the clouds, the book of Daniel deals with him arriving in heaven in the clouds. Daniel chapter 7. Take a moment and find it. Daniel chapter 7. One of the greatest chapters in the Bible, in my opinion. Daniel chapter 7. We're going to start at verse 9. As I watched, thrones were set into place, and the Ancient One took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair on his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames with wheels of burning fire. A stream of fire flowed from his presence. Thousands, thousands ministered to him. Millions, millions stood before him. Then the court was convened and the books were opened. And I kept watching. Then because of the arrogant words which the horn was speaking... I watched as the animal was killed. Its, its body was destroyed. It was given over to be burned up completely. Now as for the other animals, their rulership was taken away. But their lives were prolonged for a time and for a season. And I kept watching. I kept watching the night visions. And when I saw coming with the clouds of heaven, someone like a son of man, and he approached the Ancient One and he was led into his presence. To him was given rulership and glory and a kingdom so that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His rulership is an eternal rulership that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So essentially, what we read in Acts about him ascending into the clouds fulfills what Daniel prophesied. But then we have the two angels that appeared to the disciples inform them that as he left them, so he'd return. He left in the clouds. He will return in the clouds. 
just as Messiah said himself in Matthew 24. Now obviously this is still future to us. But there's more to be learned. Because if we take the angel's statement literally, upon his return, he should set foot upon exactly the same place from where he left. So where did he leave from? Well, let's read a little bit more of Acts chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 12. Acts chapter 1, verse 12. I'm just going to read a couple more verses. Then they returned the Shabbat walk distance from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. And after entering the city, they went to the upstairs room where they were staying. The names of the emissaries were Kepha, Yaakov, Yochanan, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartolmai, Matiao, Yaakov ben Halfai, Shimon the Zealot, and Yehuda ben Yaakov. These all devoted themselves single-mindedly to prayer, along with some women, including Miriam, Yeshua's mother, and his brothers. It says that the disciples returned to the city of Jerusalem from where? The Mount of Olives. So it seems that Yeshua ascended from the Mount of Olives. This is actually a little bit controversial. Luke, in his other volume, The Gospel, says this in chapter 24. In verse 50 through 53 we read, He led them out towards Beit Anya, and then raising his hands, he said a barachah over them. And as he was blessing them, he withdrew from them and he was carried up into heaven. And they bowed and worshipped to him. They returned to Jerusalem overflowing with joy and they spent all their time in the temple courts praising God. Here Luke says Christ descended from Beit Anya. Beit Anya means house of dates. Christians call this place Bethany. Do we have a contradiction? Even between the two volumes that Luke wrote? No. Bethany is located on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. So essentially, both of Luke's accounts are in agreement. It's just in the Gospel of Luke, he tells us where on the Mount of Olives he ascended from. And as an aside, where does Luke say that Christ's disciples then spent all their time? In the temple, praising God. So here we see how these Jewish men who formed the inner circle of Yeshua's followers continued in their Jewish ways, in their Jewish religion, by spending all their time at Herod's temple. They didn't consider themselves to be followers of a new religion. Neither did those who knew them. Otherwise, they certainly wouldn't have been allowed onto temple grounds. But there are some Bible scholars and teachers who claim that Yeshua did not ascend from the Mount of Olives, but rather from an unknown hill in the Galilee. Where might they get that idea from? Well, in the book of Matthew, chapter 28, starting at verse 16, we read this. So the eleven Talmudim, the eleven disciples, went to the hill in Galilee, where Yeshua told them to go. And when they saw him, they prostrated themselves before him, but some hesitated. And Yeshua came and talked with them, and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make people from all nations into disciples, immersing them into the reality 
of the Father and the Son and the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And remember, I will be with you always, yes, even to the end of the age. So I don't buy their premise that Yeshua ascended from the Galilee. Notice nothing is said in this passage, and this is what they draw from to say he did, says anything about his ascending. So the evidence is pretty clear to me that he ascended into the clouds from the Mount of Olives near the the, uh, village of, of Bethany, and thus that is exactly where he will be returning. But even the location of his return This was not something that Yeshua thought up and did in a vacuum. Rather, this place was prophesied long ago, long before his advent. In the book of Zechariah, we read this in chapter 14. If you want to take a moment and turn there, be my guest. We're going to be there for a few verses. Zechariah chapter 14. Starting at verse 1. Look, a day is coming for Adonai when when your plunder, Jerusalem, will be divided right there within you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem for war. The city will be taken. The houses will be rifled. The women will be raped. And half the city will go into exile. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. And then Adonai will go out and fight against those nations, fighting as on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which lies to the east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will be split in half from the east to the west, making a huge valley. Half of that mountain will move towards the north, half of it towards the south. You will flee to the valley in the mountains, For the valley and the mountains will reach to Atzel. You will flee, just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then Adonai, my God, will come to you with all the holy ones. On that day there will be neither bright light nor thick darkness. And one day, known to Adonai, will be neither day nor night, although by evening there will be light. So I think we have pretty well proven that Yeshua left from the Mount of Olives and that's where he's going to return. But I can't leave this passage of Zechariah until I point out one eerie thing that we see in 14.2. There it says that half the city of Jerusalem will be exiled, but the rest of the people, meaning the Hebrews, won't be cut off from the other half. That prophecy is in the process of being fulfilled. Jerusalem, although it is in Israel's hands today, is currently politically divided into East and West Jerusalem. And it has been for some time. Arabs occupy East Jerusalem. The Jews occupy West Jerusalem. Now this doesn't go as much for the old city, but it does have its quarters. And what I mean of the old city, I mean that old walled portion that I've taken so many of you to visit. It's been my pleasure. But rather, we're talking about the newer sections of the city. It's been built up especially in the past three or four decades. 
The point is that the Palestinians insist that East Jerusalem or all of Jerusalem shall be their capital city. And naturally, Israel says, no chance to either of those options. However, it's clear that almost almost the entire world, including the present Obama administration of the USA, is, as was the previous Bush administration, intent on splitting Jerusalem and giving half of it to the Palestinians. I feel justified in saying that Israel is not going to agree to this. It's going to have to be taken from them by force. And as we see Europe staunchly against Israel by policy, and as we see the USA pulling away at lightning speed and instead embracing Israel's enemies, the writing's on the wall. This calamitous event spoken of in Zechariah 14 can't be too far off since the stage is already set and the players are already in place. Which means the Messiah's return can't be too far off since the loss of half of Jerusalem and the return of Messiah are coupled together. That doesn't necessarily mean that those two things will happen simultaneously. Not necessarily even within days or weeks of each other, but they will happen in succession. Now let's move on a little bit. Notice in Acts 1.12. It says that the disciples returned the Shabbat walk distance from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. That doesn't mean that the day Christ ascended was the Sabbath. A Shabbat walk distance is a measurement of distance. And what we know from Jesus' day is that that distance assigned to a maximum walk you could take on the Shabbat was about two-thirds of a mile for residents of Jerusalem. But the distance would vary from city to city. The disciples immediately went to the upper room where they had been staying. Might this be the same upper room? where Yeshua had his last supper. It's possible. However, upper rooms were common in Jerusalem. Most Middle Eastern houses were built with rooms on the second floor. And that's what this is. This was not some commercial establishment. Residents of Jerusalem and nearby villages often rented out their second floor rooms that served as profit-making B&Bs, bed and breakfasts to travelers, except during the feast days. One, like just like the one that was just coming right up for these disciples, where according to the law of Moses, Jews were required to make a journey to the temple. For those appointed times, it was not permitted to charge Jewish pilgrims for their lodging. But wherever exactly the disciples stayed had to be large, because 120 of Yeshua's followers met there. Now verse 13 gives us a list of the remaining 11 disciples. And of course the list matches with all the lists of the 12 original disciples minus the now dead Judas Iscariot. But here we find that many women also joined with the men and among them was Yeshua's mother Miriam along with his brothers. Now, the term brothers in Hebrew 
can mean everything from a sibling to a close friend to, to members of one's tribe or even nation. Of course, here in the New Testament we are using Greek. So the word is adelphos. Adelphos. However, it all, that word also carries with it the same wide range of meaning as the Hebrew ach, which is brother. So are these brothers, biological siblings of Jesus, his blood family, or does this merely mean other male disciples? Well, it so happens that Matthew 13.55 refers directly to four of Yeshua's sibling brothers, Yaakov, Shimon, Yehuda, and Yosef. And since the wording of the verse in Acts, Acts is, including Miriam and his brothers, it's clear that these brothers are Yeshua's siblings, sons of Miriam. And by the way, other unpublished Gospels from that time claim that although their names aren't given to us, Miriam had daughters as well as sons, which I think is pretty believable unless she had five or more boys and no girls. What I want you to notice is that as is typical of both the Old and New Testaments, women are given respect and they're given position alongside men. There's no indication that the women were considered second-class followers or that they prayed apart from the men. Now, while it was traditional in synagogues to have men separated from the women, there is no scriptural commandment of God to do that. And there is no indication here that the believers followed, followed that example, at least in their informal setting although no doubt they did in synagogues because that was the custom. Now, let's read the last few verses of Acts chapter 1. We'll start at verse 15 and go on to the end. During this period, when the group of believers numbered about 120, Kepha stood up and addressed his fellow believers. Brothers, the Ruach HaChodesh Holy Spirit, spoke in advance through David about Yehuda, meaning Judas. And these words of the Tanakh had to be fulfilled. He was a guide for those who arrested Yeshua. He was one of us. He'd been assigned a part of our work. And with the money Judas received for his evil deed, he bought a field and there he fell to his death. His body swelled up and it burst open. All of his insides spilled out. And this became known to everyone in Jerusalem, so that they called that field Hakaldema, which in their language means field of blood. Now, said Kepha, it is written in the book of Psalms, let his estate become desolate, let there be no one to live in it, and let someone else take his place as a supervisor. Therefore, one of the men who have been with us continuously throughout the time the Lord Yeshua traveled around among us from the time Yochanan was immersing people until the day Yeshua was taken up from us one of these must become a witness with us to his resurrection they nominated two men Yosef Bar Saba surnamed Justice and Matiao and then they prayed Lord you know everyone's heart 
Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over the work and the office of emissary that Judas abandoned to go where he belongs. Then they drew lots to decide between the two and the lot fell to Matthiau. So he was added to the eleven emissaries. Here we see an address by an address by Kepha, Peter, to the group of 120 people. And it's clear in these passages, and in others, that Peter was a leader. And no doubt this was because Yeshua more or less publicly declared him so. When he said in Matthew 16, 18, I also tell you this, you are Kepha, which means rock, and on this rock I will build my community, and the gates of Sheol will not overcome it. When the opening words of verse 15 say, during this period, to give us some timing, it means during the one week period of time between Yeshua's ascension and the fulfillment of what the Father promised that was going to give power to Yeshua's disciples. It was a period of time in which none of them were to leave Jerusalem. The biblical feast of Shavuot was due in one week from Yeshua's ascension. But did the disciples know or think that what the Father promised, whatever that might be, was going to occur on Shavuot, Pentecost in Greek? There's no evidence that they knew what it was going to be, when it was going to happen, only where? In Jerusalem. Thus Peter follows his master's advice to stop focusing on the unknown. Deal with the now. And the matter that Peter felt was so important at the moment was to replace Judas. To get the number of disciples back up to twelve. So, Peter opens the discussion by telling the group that what happened to Judas was prophesied through David and he quotes passages from two Psalms, 69 and 109. But first, why is it so important that there were 12 disciples instead of the current 11? What's so great about 12? Why won't 11 do? That'll be the topic we'll start our next lesson with. (laughs) 